it is not easy to see how the more extreme forms of nationalism can long survive when men have seen the earth in its true perspective as a single, small globe against the stars. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby clock. Oh, that is... It's just always good, isn't it, from him? Oh, I love it. My favourite Arthur C. Clarke quote is, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God, but I'm very interested in her. That is genius. It's a happy 76th birthday to Rashid Aliyevich Sunyev. Happy birthday. Who is this person? He's a Soviet and Russian astrophysicist of Tartar descent. Where's Tartar, man? Do you know what? No idea. Turkish. So I, I think it's Tartar is a type of, is actually an ethnic group. Yeah, we've got Azerbaijan, China, Bulgaria and Czech. Of Turkish origin. There we go. I think he's most famous, Sunyev, with his partner, Zeldovich, developing the theory of the evolution of density fluctuations in the early universe. Oh, it's some of my favourite reading. Well, they predicted the pattern of acoustic fluctuations that have been clearly seen by WMAP and the CMB experiments in the microwave sky and in large-scale distributions of galaxies. No, really, really, really important stuff. And uh, wow. yeah, and he even uh, looked at developing models of accretion disks of black holes and their X-ray signatures. That is not just easy stuff, is it, Matt? He's an absolute bang out. So happy 76th birthday to Rashid Ilyevich Shunyev. Cake yourself. I'm going to remember the legend that was George Ogden Abel on his birthday too. Uh, he died in 1983, but he was born on March the 1st, 1927. Uh, but what makes him so great is he was a popularizer of science and a skeptic. So he was one of the original members of PSYCOP, or the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, that has become <laughs> that, that's become the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Ah, oh, I want to be a member. Well, let's join. Let's do it. So, Jamie, you got a bit of news for me? Yeah, I'd like to touch on, um, I mean, you know that I love all things asteroid mining. Yeah. Um, and this has just sort of stoked my fire a little bit. Hayabusa 2, mm-hmm. one of my favourite probes ever from Japan, has touched down on the asteroid Ryugu. Yeah. Yeah, it started taking samples that will eventually return to Earth. Incredible stuff. The, the Hayabusa 2 mission has been another international mission, another mission by a spacefaring nation that's just blown my mind. I just love it. And and I love this. And because we all know how much money's up there, Matt, just orbiting us. And uh, this is going to go a long way to collect more data. Bring it on. So, Jamie, why is the Milky Way so hungry? Well, here's the thing, Matthew. Uh, as picked up by one of our favourite mags, the new scientist, uh, a team led by Dr. Diederik Krajusen, at the University of Heidelberg in Germany, looked at a catalogue of 61 massive globular clusters in our galaxy. As you know, Matt, these being a dense group, just like my old schoolmates, of about a million stars that are found throughout galaxies. 
Um, and they were able to look into the galaxy's past, which dates back to about 13.5 billion years, uh, compared to 25 simulated versions of our galaxy. Uh, by measuring the age and metallicity of the clusters, specifically how many heavy elements they have, heavy metal mat, mm -hmm. we can see where they came from. So our galaxy formed these metal-rich galaxies early on, which means it must have eaten larger galaxies in the first few billion years. What do you think about that, Matt? It must have eaten larger galaxies. Well, check this out. Not, not only did it eat stuff, it's still eating. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. The presence of 35 less metal-rich globular clusters suggests it later ate another three galaxies, one of which is a dwarf galaxy that it's still chomping away at. So it's merged with about 15 or so of these different types of galaxies as it's sort of chomping its way through the cosmos. It's hungry, Matt. There is a study that came out quite recently, Jamie, about globular clusters that says yeah. uh, that they can't be any more than 9 billion years old. Now, apparently that makes the timings for this study about the fact that Milky Way is chomping through all these different uh, globular clusters a little bit tricky. What's the what's the scoop there? Oh, well, yeah, that's that is true. However, speaking to IFL Science, our Dr. Krugerson quoted, the globular clusters in the Milky Way are so nearby that their ages can be determined by looking at their stellar content on, on a star-by-star -star basis. The major effect advertised in their press release only affects the globular cluster populations of other galaxies and does not apply to the globular cluster system of the Milky Way. Basically, working out how galaxies form is just really hard. Yeah, it's tricky. Just like science moves, we're getting there piece by piece. We're sort of moving slowly towards the truth. Can you handle the truth? I can handle he the can. truth. I want to know if Bob Hodges can handle the truth. Now, I've got to talk about... I think he can. I'm going to talk about Gateway Foundation. Here we go. I want to mention a thing called Clark's Law. We opened with Arthur C. Clarke. And, of course, he's, did. he's the uh, one of the inventors of the concept of uh, geosynchronous orbit or Clark orbit. And uh, he was obviously a big advocate of these kind of spinning space stations. But he once wrote oh. that new ideas like the Gateway Foundation, have to pass through three stages. Stage one, it can't be done. Stage two, it probably can be done, but it's not worth doing. And stage three, I knew it was a good idea all along. Now, I want to be careful that I don't end up in stage three uh, too soon. And basically, with, yes. with, with these rotating space stations that give us gravity and make everyone feel a lot better in space... I think uh -huh. we're stuck basically at stage two. It probably can be done, but it's not worth doing. And Understood. Just as a kind of, uh, just before we sort of run into what uh, Gateway Foundation is all about, this yeah. Gateway Foundation is really similar to a to a uh, a Taurus space station that NASA looked into with the National Space Society. Yeah. Back in 1975, and there's a great video about Taurus Space Station, uh, and it even says it, during it says, we'll be able to build these things before the year 2000. It's like, yeah, a lot of optimism back there. No, is what happened. It didn't, we're nowhere near that kind of timeline. So what what is, what is the Gateway Foundation 
all about. Tell me. It's a, they posted a video quite recently, and it. I think one of the reasons why they've been slightly more emboldened recently is they've been doing a bit of maths about using SpaceX's next generation of heavy lift vehicles, the the, the uh-huh. Falcon Super Heavy and the Starship, and they're saying, you know, yes. I think they get, I think they're getting excited that if they have a kind of space industrial space version of one of uh, either of those two rockets, they'll be able to get very big things into space and start building this very large structure, which is basically very very similar to von Braun's space station. Uh, from Man Will Conquer Space Soon from the Collier's 1950 magazine that came out. That's right. Uh, of course, based on the original Konstantin Salkovsky's concept. Oh, okay. This has been a long-held thing of a spinning space station that uses the centrifugal force that we learnt last week was fictitious. My favourite force. But uh, uses the centrifugal force of a spinning object to uh, recreate... Gravity. Uh-huh. Like we said last week, you need a very, very, very big wheel to do it where you don't have these Coriolis and other side effects that that make the thing not work as you would expect. Yes. Uh, there's a chap called John Blinkow, who seems to be the, uh-huh. the Gateway Foundation CEO. And he's basically trying to point out that we need this and goes into lots of details, reads out Scott Kelly's book about how horrible, you know, the medical effects of low gravity are, and he's absolutely right. You know, it'd be absolutely brilliant to have a gravity in space and to be able to make it. However, I'm going to go as far as saying I think this is a brilliant idea, and I don't think that the Gateway Foundation is a you know a con or anything. No, and I and I genuinely think that they've kind of thought about it, but. I genuinely think with Kickstarters and things like that, that there's a kind of, it, it's like, really, you and I, Jamie, we could, we could just go, right, we've got a space station design and we're going to uh, raise money to do this space station. Hmm. This company doesn't seem to be much further along than that. I mean, admittedly, they've got a hmm. couple of experts and, and the, you know, more than we have, but, you know, really not much more. It would be like a few members of the British Interplanetary Society, for example, working on a similar project. It doesn't really have much more kudos than that. And one of the ways Mm. that they're thinking of raising money is via a lottery. But, of course, lotteries have got quite a few legal aspects around them. It's not like yes. running a Tom Bowler at your local fair because <laughs> well, you know, yeah. you know that you need a license to to run anything over a Tom Bowler and to run a lottery mm. it's illegal unless your state unless you have like unless it's the state doing it. In this country you can't yes. you can't do a lottery unless it's the national lottery. And it's the same with America and so the actual whole the whole way that they're raising money seems a little bit dubious and the whole idea of you know kickstarter money going in it's all fine you know it's this is all a doable idea but i just think that we're not that there's not enough expertise there there's not enough um elements to it to really take it that seriously yet i'm not having a go at them uh because i think this is where you'd have to start but I just don't think it's fleshed out enough to to take seriously yet. But there's some really interesting ideas, you know, having dream the dream chaser as the escape 
oh, pods. Yeah. So every single um, every single pod has its own dream chaser that you can escape with. Uh, which, when you look at it, you look you think, God, that's going to be very expensive. There's a lot of dream chaser, dream weaver, on that on that on that <laughs> on that particular. I love that. Yeah. Well, I th- I think that yeah, we should. Uh... We should keep an eye on this and keep let's keep reviewing it. And I you know, and I wouldn't mind speaking to John Blinkow or another representative. Let's get him on. I think there's been quite a lot of these kind of studies anyway on space stations. Mm. The National the National Space Society have done a really good one. Yes. And of course we we have Rod Pyle as our guest this week from the National Space Society. We do. But they've done a really, really good one and there's a lot of lot of uh, research on this and it's a great idea, and I really want it to, to happen. I think a, a spinning space station where people can go and have gravity and not become ill. That would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be a fantastic venture, but just the cost of yeah. it is absolutely astronomical for the time big. being. So, And there doesn't really seem to be a particularly great solution from uh, the, the Gateway Foundation. Mm. I'm going with interesting, but... Not enough there at the moment to to really go for it. We're stuck. We're stuck at stage two. We're stuck at stage two. Well, let's just keep an eye on it. But I'll tell you what, it's interesting. Matt, it's that time again. Space word of the week. Standard sirens. So we've all heard of standard candles. Well, at least a lot of our clever listeners will. Big time. One of the really horrific things that's happening in astronomy at the moment Mm is this massive discrepancy between various ways of measuring the Hubble constant. Now, the Hubble constant is a measurement of the expansion rate of the universe. Yes. And it can essentially be measured in two different ways. You can measure it using standard candles, uh-huh. and, you can, and you can also measure it using the microwave background radiation. Mm-hmm. They're currently giving an answer that's different by about 9% which basically means that someone's made a mistake or there is something dramatically wrong with the way that we see the universe and there's some new science that needs to be had, which is exciting, which is exciting and frustrating at the same time. Equal measure. So bear in mind, in the 1990s, when they were trying to get uh, this uh, this Hubble constant nailed, yeah. Uh, this is when they were using distant supernova explosions to discover the expansion rate of the universe. This is where they discovered that it was accelerating under the influence of what we now call dark energy. And uh, the people that discovered this obviously got the Nobel Prize. So this might be another Nobel Prize up for grabs if you can nail this. So anyway, back to standard sirens. So what are standard sirens? Well, We've all love our gravitational waves, right? Ah, oh, who doesn't? And this is one of the reasons why they've opened up such an amazing new window into astronomy. So, and we mentioned this on the show when it actually happened was the was the one where we have multi messenger astronomy. In other words, that's the one. LIGO and Virgo when they when they pick up these gravitational waves, if it happens to be an event that other observatories can see, then it's multi-messenger. So the first of these events was a merger between two neutron stars. And not only did LIGO and Virgo see it, but so did Integral, Swift, Maxi, New Star, Chandra, Hubble, 
loads of optical telescopes, REM, ROS, VISTA, ESO, very large telescopes, SOAR, ATCA, VLA, ASCAP, loads of IR and radio telescopes and different observatories, all at wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation, radio, infrared, optical, ultraviolet, X-ray, gamma ray, the whole kit and caboodle. Jeez. So the message coming from this massive neutron star event can be seen in lots of different ways, meaning that these neutron star events, you can nail down exactly how bright they are because you've got all this information. So you can work out how much energy was actually in it, which means that you are able to use them to find out exactly how far away they are as well, which means just like standard candles, the supernova explosions that are called standard candles or the CFID variables that are standard ca candles, basically uh -huh. because of the physics of these objects, you're, you're able to know exactly how bright they are so you can work out exactly how far away they are as well. So you're able to use standard candles to measure the distances and you're able to do a thing that's really clever called the cosmic distance ladder where you build up distances step by step so you you measure the distance to nearby stars then to distant clusters yeah. and and then to different uh, bigger galaxies and, and stuff like that and so you're able to build up this cosmic distance ladder using standard sirens which is basically using these uh, events that have gravitational waves associated with them you're able to sort of see so much further out into the into the universe and so you can skip many rungs of the cosmic distance ladder and 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 start to nail down this hubble constant which will really really help us to understand exactly what the hell's going on with the hubble constant is there some new science out there or is it just small errors in the measurements that have been used in the cosmic ladder so far. So it'll be really interesting. Of course, each rung of a ladder that you have, the more errors creep in. So at the moment, they're not sure whether it's errors, but it could reveal that there is some new physics to be had. Well, I love all of that, and I especially love the word rung. And you said it twice. I, so did, I did use the, I did use the word boy. rung. Matt, would you, like a, would you like an interview? I'd love an interview. Who have we got? We've got Rod Pyle, and it is, I, this is an interview I actually thoroughly enjoyed. There's something about Rod Pyle. The moment I started speaking to him, uh, he, he, a lot of our guests are like this, aren't we? I, I just think that uh, – <laughs> I think it's space. I think people who are, who are fascinated by space are just generally good people. Generally <laughs> decent peeps, <laughs> I reckon. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I really love this interview. He's a really great guy. He writes some brilliant books. He's part of the National Space Society – Let's roll the tape. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. You've got lightning out there, Rod, is that right? Yes, and in Southern California, I live in Los Angeles, it, it's an amazing thing just to look up and see water coming out of the sky. You see people walking out of their houses going, what, what's happening? What, what is this natural <laughs> phenomenon I've never seen? So we're quite happy to have the rain. I could do it without the lightning and thunder, but yes. Well, it's, it's snowing outside my window, so we've got weather. So, Rod, uh, for those of our listeners that are not aware of what you do, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of them will go, ah, yes, I know. I hope you're right. Uh, I, I am a very slightly, with emphasis on slightly famous uh, space author, 
And I came to that by way of growing up during the space race. So I was a, a, a preteen when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And when other kids were off idolizing baseball and football players, because basketball wasn't the whole thing that it is now in the U.S. at the time, I was at home with two or three TV sets assembled in the living room, which was a luxury then, with my own little mission control, watching the moon landings and the moonwalks. So it was an amazing time to grow up because these incredible missions of exploration were leaving sometimes as frequently as every two months. And from today's perspective, that just seems almost impossible, especially given the level of the technology and what we didn't know about outer space then. Mm. But it was an amazing time. So that really kindled that bug. So I, I decided, okay, I'm going to go into the hard sciences. I'm going to be an astronomer. So I enrolled at University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, got in the astronomy program, and, and about a year and a half later, hit differential equations of calculus and realized, oh, I'm not going to be an astronomer. <laughs> I know, I'll be a media guy and I'll talk about astronomy. So switch gears, and uh, since then I've spent time in the documentary field, the History Channel. I spent time in visual effects with Star Trek and briefly with uh, the Battlestar Galactic reboot. reboot. And then I got into writing, uh, doing some journalism in space, and I thought, you know, this and the History Channel stuff is great, but especially television in the U.S. market, they say, okay, talk about the history of Apollo in this episode. I only have 44 minutes. Yeah, that's right. So you can give, you know, seven minutes to each mission and don't include the the ramp up or the ramp down. So that got really frustrating after a while because I felt like I was writing what would later become tweets. Mm. And um, so books were the way to escape that. So 2005, I wrote my first book. I'm up to, I think, 15 now. And I have four new ones coming out this year, which is a bit of a marathon that I hope I don't have to repeat soon. But um, there's just nothing like it because, as you know, if you're going to be interested in something and you want to engage with it, there's nothing like being able to kind of get down and roll around in it, you know? I don't want to bring up any visual metaphors of pigs in mud, but you get the idea. <laughs> oh, this feels really good. And it's just the best way, other than being a professional podcaster and, and music person like yourself, it's the best way of making a living, I can imagine. And I put living in quotes, but you get the idea. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> so um, that's kind of where I've ended up. So I, I, I write a couple books a year on average, and then I also edit a magazine called Edit Astra. It's a print quarterly for a group called the National Space Society, and they're a space settlement pro-space uh, activity group. And um, between those two things, I'm fully, fully engaged, and it's just uh, it's a real pleasure. Wow, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about the society? Because the, 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 this podcast is, uh, we're, we're associated with the British Interplanetary Society. Is it, is it a similar oh. uh, type of society to, to that? Generally, yeah. It's actually uh, the oldest and one of the largest uh, in the United States. It was formed in the late 70s by Werner von Braun himself Wow, um, of the Apollo program. <laughs> as his attempt to kind of engage the public in this, this waning conversation post the Apollo missions. And in the eighties, it merged with the L five society, which was a group founded around the ideas of Jerry O'Neill, who was the guy who came up with one of the more, uh, thrilling designs for orbital colonies. So those two groups merged together, uh, tens of thousands of members, and they've been added ever since. And their real thesis is, we need to settle space. We need to get people off the planet. Not all of them, but we need to move humanity off of Earth 
and begin to reap the benefits of the solar system for our, our species, both on Earth and the people out there. And as I'm sure you know, there's so much raw material out there because, let's face it, everything we use on the Earth came from space, and there's a lot of it out there. So in terms of of, of water ice that can be used for rocket fuel, breathable oxygen, drinkable water in terms of metals that can be used to make rocket parts and habitats and everything else in terms of rare earth metals, which can be obviously are used in lots of electronics and China has kind of has a lock on that market. Now mm. there's just so many resources out there and that's not even talking about something like space solar power where you can have power satellites in orbit that are beaming energy down to the planet and on the proper scale, really going a long way, if not completely, towards reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. And then you've got ideas of people like Jeff Bezos, who's famously said he wants to recreate Earth or allow Earth to return to its pristine state, be essentially held as a park, if you will, mm -hmm. and move heavy industry and polluting industries off of the Earth and into space. So these are all long-term visions, but they're they're doable. The technology isn't inconceivable. It's largely a matter of scale and investment. And that's kind of what this new book I wrote, Space 2.0, is about, is really looking at, you know, what's likely to be happening in the next 20 years, what can we accomplish if we put our minds to it, why should we do it, and what is this, there's a sweet spot here between NASA, uh, other other national government space agencies, and the private sector, you know, where is that sweet spot so we can really see this start to happen in the near term and make a huge difference in the way we live? Yeah, I I, I want to get onto that 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 question a little bit later with yeah sure. that, that exactly that that mix of commercial and and governmental uh, space and where it, that's all heading. But uh, one chapter that I'm reading at the moment from this book and it and it and it and I it, I really recommend it to our listeners because it's it's exactly what we talk about on the show. Uh, there's uh, there, I'm it's a chapter three and it's why space and uh, <laughs> it's 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 something that really does. It's brilliant because this is often a, a conversation I get embroiled in on Facebook with with friends, and you see people saying, "Oh, we spend too much money on things like space," and, and right. I do find it frustrating. So it's a, it's a really good chapter. So can you tell us a little? Well, what I'd really like is what are your kind of top five things that you you engage people with when you're talking about why space, why why we should take space seriously, and why we should go out and do it. It's a really important subject, and it's one that that no less an organization that NASA has been struggling with since its origins, as you may recall, back in the Apollo era when we were bending our energies significantly towards landing the first humans on the moon. This was a huge topic of discussion here, and it was embroiled with civil rights and everything else. But really, the conversation was, look, we've got poverty, we've got hunger, we've got disease, we have all these problems on Earth, why are you spending all this money on space? Well, part of the answer to that is we're not spending all that much. At that time, we were spending 5% of the federal budget. Now we're spending in the U.S. a tenth of that. And at the same time, NASA is doing easily 10 times more missions and projects, way more than that, than they were at the time. At the time, back in the 60s, it was Gemini and Apollo on the human spaceflight side, and various uh, robotic probes out to Venus and Mars, and that was about it. Now we've got probes outside the solar system, at the edge of the solar system, out past Pluto, uh, orbiting Jupiter. We have uh, plenty of Earth-orbiting assets and a huge number of satellites and various kinds of research machines out there. We've got rovers on Mars, orbiters around Mars. Uh, the Parker probe just slung 
past the sun, stuff headed out to Mercury, work going on on asteroids. So it's a huge amount of work that's done with not very much money. Now, the budget is the, the NASA's budget is $19 billion, roughly, dollars a year, U.S. dollars. And that sounds like a lot. But when you look at something like you know, some of the military fighter programs we have here that go up into the, the foreign edging up towards $500 billion range, <laughs> the 19 doesn't seem like so much. And when you survey the public, the American public, which they do every couple of years, I mean, people, a large percentage of people, you ask them, well, what's NASA's budget? Oh, it's about a quarter of the U.S. budget, right? <laughs> no, it's a half of 1%. What are you smoking? Now, I don't I don't know in the international sector how that plays out because I haven't studies quite that- there is there is an ESA study that just came out almost oh, exactly yeah ex- almost exactly the same question it's like how much do you think you spend as a citizen on space and for and for Europeans we we spend about ten dollars each and everyone's guess was more like one hundred and fifty dollars so it was like an order of magnitude out so they're so, off by just a touch yeah yeah so it's yeah it's it's, it's exactly the same so that addresses the expense side. And again, you know, we're moving into this new era. I like to think of it as the second space age because I enjoyed the first one so much where we're seeing more activity. But this time there's a huge difference, which is their commercial return. So just stepping back in history a bit again, when you look at the returns and I'm, I'm leaving the Soviet Union out of this because they had their own set of benefits in their space program. Some of the best camera lenses ever created, by the way, were done for Soviet spy satellites. Hmm. Um, but on the American American side, you know, we had the first flyable digital computer on Apollo. We had this room-sized computer reduced down to something the size of a briefcase, first use of integrated circuits in that role, incredibly compact and robust software. And this is when computers were just waking up. They were new. Um, That's been what you can trace those roots very directly into the entire telecommunications infrastructure we have now, especially famously cell phones and so forth. So there are those kind of benefits that relate directly to the consumer. Satellites alone, um, so much of the world economy depends on them for agriculture, banking, transportation. You know, how do you track trains and trucks moving all over the country and ships moving across the world? You do it by satellite. Uh, weather tracking, you know, knowing what areas to avoid if you're at sea, knowing what the upcoming trends and weather are going to be, tracking climate change around the world. This is all done by satellites, and those were all first pioneered by the American and Russian space programs. So the list goes on and on. Medical is another huge one. And it's not just from the space race. These returns continue. There's work been done in the last 10 years up on the International Space Station, which is a consortium of us all, which is probably the wave of the future if we do it right, uh, on wound healing, how to speed wound healing for difficult to to cure wounds. Um, that's just one small example. There's a ton of other things being done up there that can only be done that way in zero G. So it's a long conversation and I kind of prattle on about it probably longer than I should have in that chapter of the book. But I really wanted to get that point across because here in the U.S. I do a lot of late night radio and late night radio in the American market is people that can't sleep, right? (laughs) They're They're probably driving from Kentucky to Tennessee or something in a big rig. And so you get some of those very basic questions like, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for you is already a huge percentage of what drives your modern lifestyle and moving into the future for your children, the potential for clean energy, the potential 
potential for incredible returns. I was just reading a figure. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, this was a uh, Morgan Stanley study, one of our big financial firms, talking about the space industry being worth. And these guys, they're not wild-eyed optimists. Hmm. They're they're chilly-eyed, steely-eyed missile men, you know, in the financial sense anyway. Eleven trillion dollars by 4040. And it's that's up from where we are right now, which all space-based activity is worth about 350 billion. So that's already a big number. But when you start talking about trillions, you're talking about real cash. And a lot of this is going to happen in the private sector. And by the nature of the way these things evolve, at least as near as we can tell looking ahead, this is something that will not just be the one percenters investing and benefiting, although that's kind of a, a part of what we're seeing now with, with Musk and Bezos and people like that, but shareholders. So mutual funds, there's going to be huge stakes in people's retirement accounts directly linked to space-based activities, and those returns will be massive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the argument I enjoyed most was a I had the other day on a Facebook post where I pointed out someone was saying we should be spending money on uh, you know averting global warming instead of space, and I was saying we probably wouldn't even know or be able to prove global warming without our space infrastructure. So the whole thing kind of is a little bit ridiculous, I think. It, um, it is. And certainly tracking it and, and knowing the next moves come entirely from space-based access. Very little of that research is done on the ground directly. And uh, I work at JPL on a contract basis. I go up every year or so to, to write books and materials for them. And I, I get to sit down with 30 or 40 of their young, brilliant, fast-charging principal investigators there, they're science people and engineers, and talk about their projects. And just some of these smaller projects being done in terms of climate change and weather just would blow your mind. I mean, we used to have to put up satellites the size of a compact car or larger to do this kind of tracking. And now something the size of a microwave can do it with ever smaller radar units, with ever smaller power supplies, smaller solar panels, which means they're cheaper to launch. You can put more of them up there. And the work that they're doing now and looking ahead is just incredibly inspiring. Every time I go up there, I, I kind of come home feeling a little lift in my in my feet, you know, because I've had a chance to sit around with these really smart people that make me feel about as intelligent as my Labrador by the time I'm done. <laughs> and, uh, and hear their plans for the future. And they are unbelievably passionate, not just about space, but about about change, about righting wrongs, about trying to set things back on a survivable course for everybody. Buddy, it's a very pro-social group, and I know it's that way in other countries too. This is just what I'm exposed to here. Is that is that what you mean in the title of your book about a resurgent NASA? Is that is is that really what you're referring to? That 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 kind of young spirit that's coming through in that sense? I think so. You know, you go to any of the of the major NASA field centers. So I spent time at JPL. I worked at Johnson Space Center for a while. I've been to Kennedy and a handful of others, and. You talk to those guys, you say, what was your inspiration? Depending on their age, you know, there's this bright line between Star Trek and Star Wars, right? And <laughs> if you want to start a, a nice, rapid-fire discussion, you get those guys in the cafeteria and say something like, Star Wars is just silly space opera, and boy, <laughs> just duck and watch the fireworks go. But they were all inspired, interestingly, by science fiction and, of course, the, the space race and the shuttle program. Um, so the energy there 
is is really inspiring and and they they work so hard and as you know so many of the workup programs that never come to fruition but that basic research and development they're doing usually leads to something else laterally and then it, it either goes into a program that is funded or or starts a new one but their commitment and the level of excitement that's happening inside NASA even with these constrained budgets and even with the course changing that we've seen here in the last 20 years which has been substantial they're just these un tiring optimists. I don't think I could do it. I mean, when I was working at uh, Johnson Space Center, it was right after the Constellation program got killed, which was our going to be our return to the moon program that George Bush kickstarted in 2004. It had just gotten canceled. Every day when you drove in the main drive to the Johnson Space Center, you had to pass the building on your right that the entire lower floor had a painting of the Constellation rocket on the side horizontally. I had to look at it and think, gee, I hope we have enough money left to scrape that off because that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, no. So, you know, they they struggle past these challenges, but I think we are seeing a new NASA, and, and a huge part of that new NASA is their realization. I mean, internal studies, for instance, at NASA, these are ones they commissioned themselves, have shown that SpaceX is able to build some of their hardware components for anywhere from a half to a tenth of the cost that it would be for government to do it. So the messages come home loud and clear. You've got to start spreading out how you do things. You've got to let the commercial sector do what they do best, which launch is clearly one of those things. So even mm. though we're still building the space launch system, as you know, we've got the Falcon Heavy and then we've got the new Glenn coming up from Blue Origin and the Vulcan coming up from ULA, United Launch Alliance, those rockets are going to be doing a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of work. And I think that's really where the magic begins to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So what, do you, what, what has it been, do you think, that's been the, 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 key, the key factors then for these commercial, well, for your Elon Musks and your Jeff Bezos, et cetera, to actually plug in and fill the gaps for NASA and, and do it at this ridiculous <laughs> orders of magnitude cheaper than NASA have done it. I mean, this has never been possible before, so why is it possible now? Well, I think there's a magic of timing here. You know, we're at a technological point where these things can be done, especially 3D additive manufacturing, 3D printing was a huge part of it. But really, it comes down to, as silly as it sounds, I feel like I'm, ta I'm looking sometimes at a 1950s science fiction movie where the crazy industrial and Destination Moon says, I'm going to build a rocket in my back 40, and you guys will fly it. And then the military guys show up and say, no, no, this is our thing, and so forth. But it, it's a little bit like that. I mean, we had, in particular, these two arguably crazy billionaires who said, you know, I've made a lot of money in tech. Uh, business has been good to me. I've had this dream since I was a young boy of rockets and space flight, and I'm just going to do it. And as you probably know, when Elon Musk started all this in 2002, he went to NASA and he went to the military later and said, hey, I'm going to build rockets and I want you guys to be my customers. And the response was kind of like, that's nice, kid. You know, get out of the circuit and talk to us yeah. when you've, hit, you've made your toy rocket. And it was a long and difficult road, particularly for Musk. He didn't have the kind of uh, assets to pull from that Bezos does. But they've both just persevered with this incredible passion. I mean, with Bezos to the point where he's cashiering a billion dollars with a B of his stock in Amazon every year, which, you know, when you're worth $154 billion, that's not uh, going to put you out of business anytime soon. But it's a big commitment. He's really putting his money where his mouth is, saying, I'm serious about this, you guys. Same with Richard Branson. He's serious. He's put tons of his own money and others into uh, Virgin Galactic. 
So I think I think that's what really is beginning to make the difference, seeing the investment of these guys. And then by extension, when you go back to traditional aerospace, these companies that worked on cost-plus contracts for decades with NASA and the defense establishment in the U.S., uh, you know, they have to change the way they do things. They have to up their game. And already at United Launch Alliance, one of the people I interviewed for the book was Tori Bruno, who runs ULA. You know, he said, look, we got the message loud and clear. We got to change how we do things. We've got to move our workforce. We've got to recruit more dynamic young people because there's an incredible new wave of, of brilliant young engineers coming up who grew up with computers, who grew up with software, who grew up knowing how to do these things. The guys my age have to learn by hook or by crook. And those people are starting to make the difference and they're leaning out their operation and they're looking into, at this point, designing reusable rockets as well. So these are just a, a handful of the many steps, and this doesn't even touch on the larger topic, which is uh, an upcoming chapter when you get around to it, uh, <laughs> called infrastructure. And it's a boring word. I mean, you hear infrastructure, and you think, eh, you know, you're talking about counting the number of toilet paper rolls in a pallet at the supermarket or something. Infrastructure in, in space is critical because that's when it becomes regularized. That's when it's normalized. That's when we have orbital fuel depots and outposts posts and manufacturing facilities and the ability to to mine materials that we can use in space that's already there. So instead of spending thousands of dollars to launch a gallon of water, you just go up to the depot next to the asteroid or to the lunar poles and you grab it there. And now you're really out there in a meaningful way and things begin to shift. So I think that's where we're headed. But it started, I would say, arguably with these with these billionaires who, let's face it, they're building on the shoulders of the space race years here and the incredible work done by some of their competitors, actually people like Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and those companies, Aerodyne rocket jet, excuse me, <laughs> Aerojet rocket dyne, <Yeah. laughs> have done, you know, incredible work setting the foundations for this. And they're taking that and improving it and, and moving forward. So everybody wins. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, so where <laughs> in that, in this, new age then so where do the where do the nations sit as in we had obviously the the biggest part of the space race was this rivalry between russia well the ussr and america and and that's what really drove it was competitiveness but at the moment obviously with things like the lunar gateway we we have a collaboration more than competitiveness um, between right. between Russia and America, uh, so uh, and Europe as well. So, where do you think that's going to go? Do you think do you think we're going to have a mix of collaboration and competitiveness in nations, and a, and a mix of collaboration and competitiveness with commercial space as well? What, what's the what's the balance? Yeah, that's that sweet spot I was talking about. And and one of the people I interviewed, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was one of the guys at Maiden space was talking about the idea of co-opetition which is the word oh no it was um it was chad anderson at uh, space angels which is a, a space investment firm because i've got a whole chapter on on financing space flight and, and space development and he said co-opetition is the key and i thought ooh, that's a first oh, i had to call to say was this a typo <laughs> co-op- competition so you know you're right we can go a couple of ways i mean we see you know, there's a lot of grumbling in the U.S. because China just won up this. I mean, up till now, China has been following a very logical, steady progression of steps that look very much like the space race did in the U.S. and the USSR of, of these incremental advances. 
But hey, they just did something we talked about on both sides of space base but didn't do, which is putting something on the far side of the moon. That's hard because you've got to have a satellite out there so that that probe that lands on the far side can actually talk to Earth because you're trying to talk through thousands of miles of rock and it makes a lousy radio conductor. So you need a satellite off to the limbs so you can do it. That's tough. So that's a big achievement. And there is this this gradual awakening of the sense that we're being not left behind, but we're being one-upped or, or perhaps outpaced. Now, I don't think that's happened yet. Most people who really look at it academically and objectively don't think that's happened yet. China's still emerging in this sense, but they have a different political system where they can make decisions a decade in advance and say that's it. They don't have all these this democratic gooiness of changing administrations and congressional shifts and the shell games that sometimes go on here. So given that that's a little bit like getting back to the, to the moon race, you know, you make a decision and there's a decade of development and you just power through it. So I expect great things out of China. I'm, I'm with Buzz Aldrin on this one. We talk often about this and he is a huge advocate of international cooperation. We've seen it work pretty well with the space station. It, it, you know, it arguably it might have been a little more efficient had it not been an international venture, but the international venture paid for a lot of that freight. So uh, a big percentage of it was paid by foreign powers. And I think if we can begin to, so that was essentially an equal partnership. If we can begin to really leverage the strengths of each nation and their program, if people are willing to do that, and this is tough because you got a lot of national pride and consideration here. Hmm. China and India both are very much um, involved in that part of it right now, as we were back in the 60s and 70s. But if you could take what people do best, so for example, uh, India orbited the Mars, Mars orbiting mission a few years back. It was their first attempt at Mars. It succeeded. That doesn't happen very often. No. There's only the fourth, <laughs> fourth power to do that after U.S., Russia, Europe, and, and now, now India. And um, they did it for $36 million. That's really cheap. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't remember the cost on the Soviet side in the day because I don't think they ever published them. But in the United States these days, you want to mount a Mars mission, it's three $400 million minimum. So uh, I was talking to a gentleman there who's the high, uh, from JPL who's high up in their engineering structure there. And I said, you know, what's the future here? And he said, I think the future is we, we capitalize on these strengths. And as it turns out, NASA is working with India right now, or will soon will be, on a uh, mission. I think it's a Mars mission, where India is going to do uh, a lot of the design and, and engineering will happen in the U.S. at NASA, but also with India and, and their institutions, because they've gotten very good at it. Then they're going to merge their efforts. It'll be fabricated and tested in India and then flown jointly because the cost of labor is lower and you've got this incredible, huge trained, highly trained labor force, which by the way, I didn't know this on the Mars orbit mission. It was about 80% women because they're equally as well educated and incredibly capable, but they're at least at this point make a fair amount less than men do. So they were this ideal way to keep the cost down on this. So I think that's where you begin seeing the strength that's really emerge and then let the government programs do what they do best, which is set big goals, do the, the push out the deeper space, do the research, build the infrastructure, sort of lay the, help lay the tracks for the trains, if you will, and then let private industry get things shuttled back and forth between Earth and Earth surface and orbit and make things happen and up there the way they can do best because they're incredibly efficient. So that's what I hope to see.
So once this infrastructure's been built and you've now got commercial space has to, in a way, actually realise space as a commercial venture without the support of the nation state saying, we need your help to do this particular project or this project. Once those projects are finished and, and it's and it's commercial space going out to actually make money from space resources completely on their own, so people on the ground paying for stuff that's come from space or products and services from space directly with those commercial uh, outfits – what do you think is going to come first and, and how quickly do you think that's actually going to happen where we have a, tr- a, a truly 100% commercial space? You're putting me right in the crosshairs here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the conversations that goes on in groups like the NSS and, and a certain sector of, of enthusiastic people is, you know, when do we get to go? When do people actually go out there and be- begin to enjoy the benefits of being in space, whatever they are? It's different for everybody, and there's different takes on that. Some people feel it's going to be only the very wealthy that go out and treat it a resort. Other people feel that it's going to be the the miners and the the engineers and people that are actually doing the hard. It'll be like living on a on a, a North Sea oil rig, you know. Hmm. Um, I think some of the earliest things though will be tourism. So hopefully this year, Virgin Galactic will start making their first tourist flights. Sometime this year or next, we hope Blue Origin will start making some of their tourist flights. So that's not a huge amount of revenue, but it's the beginning of a stream that will go on indefinitely because as that gets less expensive to do, more and more people will go. The question, of course, is will they go more than once because there's only so many extremely wealthy to go around. So the continuing lower, the continued lowering of the cost of launch is critical. But I think the real step is going to be when we start being able to utilize assets that are already out there, as I was talking about, the metal in the water and the oxygen, lunar soil, and so forth, and begin to make the, the processes out there much more efficient and inexpensive. And then you could start doing research to discover the things you could do and manufacture and create in space that we don't even know about yet. So one of the bright spots in the commercial on the manufacturing and assembly side in microgravity environments off Earth is this, uh, it's a fiber optic cable called ZBLAN, which is incredibly efficient. It works much better than the stuff we make on Earth. A single strand could go clear across the Atlantic Ocean with no repeaters, so it's espionage proof and so forth. And it can only be made in zero gravity. Well, we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't gone up and tried. Hmm. So the more of a foothold we can get up there and start getting brilliant minds up there, either in actually transporting people up there or through telepresence, to begin doing some of this uh, this research work, then we'll find even more things that we can do. And I think that's where it really begins to wake up. And that's where the innovation will come. So you, you think that those sort of things will start happening before, say, uh, m- mining of asteroids or or mining of moon resources or anything like that? Or, or, or do you see them as the same sort of thing? I, I see them kind of running in parallel, although, we, you know, we had this kind of false start on the asteroid mining front. We had a couple of companies start up in the U.S., Deep Space Industries and Planetary Resources, got a lot of funding, uh, started doing basic operations, trying to figure out how to at least identify and prospect the proper asteroids and then then all that prior to actually going and, and digging out the ore. And uh, both of them have encountered significant challenges and they're kind of adjusting course to try and accommodate. So I think that was a little premature. 
Um, but I'd say, you know, if I had to, to hazard a guess, if I was in Vegas at a table, I'd say six to 10 years when that begins to happen on a small scale. And then hopefully it'll ramp up very quickly because the, the amount of, of valuable stuff out there, I mean, even just talking about something as basic as platinum, the amount of platinum in some asteroids is mind boggling. And of course you bring back too much of it and you'll depress the market. So you don't <laughs> want to do that. But there are even people, there's one very wealthy gentleman I spoke to who said, yeah, well just, you know, here's a, an asteroid rich in platinum. He's, he's a space investor. We'll just deorbit it. And I've already talked to people in Australia about landing in the outback. And I said, wait, what, really? <laughs> they're, they're okay with that? He said, yeah, absolutely. But well, you know, asteroids and meteors can become a significant weapon. So that's probably a more complex conversation. <laughs> and that is also a part of the bigger conversation, which is where the regulation is, who's doing it, and how much it speeds up or slows things down. So a big part of this will be hinging on, on government regulation. And that's going to be different for every country. Then they have to come together and have a meeting of the minds. We need to rewrite the Outer Space Treaty to figure out how we can let people benefit from their investment in in a patch on the moon or on an asteroid and get around this this difficulty of you can't claim territory in space, which is what the Outer Space Treaty says, in, in essence, besides not being a well, weaponize it. You can't claim territories. So everybody's looking at the Antarctic Treaty again, saying, okay, how can we sort of modify this to work in space properly? But as one pundit here, Rick Tomlinson said, look, I don't want to own the ocean that I'm fishing on. I just want to be able to keep the fish, which I think is a really good metaphor. So when you begin to iron those things out, things can begin to move more quickly because now people feel it's safe to invest. So that those are the keys. And I kind of dodged your question very skillfully, don't you think? <laughs> well, I'll let you off then. But here's the here's, uh, with on that point, I think it's a really interesting point. Could you see somewhere like a Luxembourg or another nation that's getting its act together in terms of the legislation and the insurances and all those sort of things actually uh, stealing the march on this kind of new space commercialization in terms of you just have a nation that just gets it right, sorts it out, and you suddenly have a, a world leader in that particular part of the jigsaw puzzle, as it were. You know, I wish I had heard the phrase stealing the march before I wrote this book, because I really liked that and I would have stolen it from you. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I mean, look at Hong Kong and the financial markets in the 20th century. It was this huge London as well, you know, these huge centers of, of finance and commerce that were unrivaled. And yes, I think there will be countries that, that see those benefits early on. Luxembourg's one. The U.S., obviously, we have a kind of a unique structure here for, for tax and investment and wealth that allows us to do things that is harder for some other countries to do. This was something that was related to me by the head of the German Space Agency saying, look, we don't, we don't have that kind of structure here. It's going to be harder for us. We're trying to figure it out. So, so I guess... Part of it depends on how quickly the governments can kind of adjust their regulatory and tax and business structures to accommodate this. But yeah, I, I could see it happening in Luxembourg. I could certainly see it happening in China because uh, for for a fairly directly governed system, they're pretty nimble when it comes to accommodating financial shifts. And I think they're very smart about it. And I hope it happens in the U.S. and Europe because we all need it. You know, We all need to benefit from this. And there's going to be a lot of money to be made so let's spread it around a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So what? where do you kind of see it in, say, have you, 
let's have a kind of your best guess then. I'll put you back on the spot. I'll put you back in crosshairs. <laughs> is, is Where do you see it in five years? Where do you see it in 10 years? And where do you see it in 20 years, say? In- so five years, I think we're just beginning to get the Lunar Gateway going, assuming that all goes as planned. SLS is flown. It's expensive. Uh, it's reserved for sort of special uses. And then an awful lot of the heavy lifting is done by the Falcon Heavy, the New Glenn out of Blue Origin, and hopefully Elon Musk's Starship is flying by then or soon thereafter. And these, this is really driving the cost of launch down to the point where that almost becomes an incidental compared to the other costs. So fabrication assembly is is more than launch. And, of course, fabrication assembly continues to come down. Miniaturization will play a huge role. We're already seeing CubeSats doing the work that full satellites used to have to do. So the orbital infrastructure around Earth will will be ramping up big time. We'll have these constellations of broadband satellites uh, providing internet access to everybody on the planet. Now you've got a whole bunch of new, new brilliant minds being educated and coming into the conversation. So that begins to catch fire. Um, on the human space flight side, I think we're in orbit around the moon and we're, we're just taking those first steps towards going back to the surface. There's money going into lander programs in the United States and elsewhere, uh, both robotic and, and human. And we're seriously rounding that corner of, okay, where are we going to p- put people on the moon and what are they going to do? You know, this can't just be a scientific endeavor. It's got to have other value as well. Hopefully, uh, commerce is involved. And so that that would kind of be where I'd see it in, in five years. And, and of course, I'm a, an endless optimist. So <laughs> yeah, Sounds pretty optimistic. I like it. <laughs> well, it is. And, you know, we watch SLS go through these trials and tribulations. It's it's taking a long time to to get a Saturn V class rocket back in operation. But I think once it is, it'll go smoothly because, you know, the thing about NASA is, I mean, you go to a NASA assembly plant and it's like this clean room where people are doing this incredibly intricate work on one big rocket. And then you go to SpaceX and it looks like General Motors. There's second stages all the way over there into the darkness. There's first stages over there. There's engines all over the place. And it's not a clean room. It's a factory. And people, it's just enough to do it right and to do it economically. And it's really inspiring because it really is a rocket factory. And that's something I'd certainly never seen before. So I think that's you know, an important step in learning how to do these things affordably and effectively and um, efficiently. So that's five years. Ten year, was 10 years the next step? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going up in exponential. Yeah. <laughs> 10 years puts us as close to 2030. Um, I think we're on the surface of the moon. And when I say we, I mean I think the U.S. and the Europeans have worked out the lunar village idea. And pr- it's probably still a little siloed, but but there's a cooperative venture up there. Hopefully the Chinese are engaged because we've got this multi-party system. So uh, they can come into the conversation despite some of the difficulties we have with our legal structures here that prevent some of that. And hopefully we've worked all that out because they're a strong partner and they're a big player and they're going to be there whether their base is on the other side of the moon or, or right next to yours. So, you know, let's cooperate and not have to to go 2,000 miles overland to get to the Chinese base to go visit with a formal delegation. I mean, let's just have these things adjoined and everybody's working together. So I think internationalization of it is going to be the big story there along with commerce. And um, that's just the moon um, orbit. I think we're starting to see, we, we've got the space station winding down. We've got various private 
orbital facilities that come behind that for both recreation uses, hotels, and so forth, and also for manufacturing and, and science. Uh, hopefully, they're sharing the same real estate because why not? That's that's much more efficient. And by that time, I'd like to think that um, not just orbital assembly, but orbital manufacturing and space manufacturing will be going on with space-based resources because you know lifting everything we need off Earth is what we have to do now. But it's not it's not the key. You know, the key is using the things out there, as I keep saying because we don't have to take them up there. So let's not carry water up. Let's not carry oxygen up. Let's not carry up all these metal components. We can just go up there and print. We can print rocket nozzles. We can print booster stages. We can print pizzas. We can print <laughs> sandwiches up there, you know, because we've got all the stuff to do it. It might be a little bit of a stretch. I don't want space baloney, but you get the idea. And um, that that's starting to make the difference there. Then going out 20, 25 years, I've left one thing out. I'm sorry. Uh, another thing is going to be getting back and forth between the Earth and the Moon. Initially, that'll be done with purpose-built rockets launched for that individual mission um, to get us from Earth orbit to the Moon. But as you know, companies like uh, ULA are working on, on the, the ACES stage, hmm. which is this upper stage that can go up into orbit. It does its work. It's parked there. It either still has fuel in it or gets refueled, and it can sit for up to a year with cryogenic fuels in it, mind you, just in idle mode waiting to be reused. So you you use a less expensive, smaller rocket to get something off the surface of the Earth. It joins up with the ACES stage, that's A-C-E-S. And um, that stage then does the, the tugboat duty between Earth and the Moon. And then when you get to the Moon, you've got fuel there, so you can refuel there and come back to Earth orbit and be in standby mode for your next flight. Now you've got this taxi surface going, which is a much more efficient way of doing things. Hopefully within 20, 25 years, we figure out things like uh, uh, mass drivers and so forth that can be even more effective because it's just a set of rails on the surface of a body like the moon and you aim it at Earth and you charge it with a bunch of electricity and it goes zap and the magnets send this mass back towards Earth. you got to be very careful to aim it in the right direction. You don't want to surprise anybody <laughs> with it showing up on the surface. You want it to stay in orbit. Um, and then... And you're beginning to move, not not just mine and manufacture things up there, but move them around very efficiently and inexpensive. And now things are really opening uh, opening up. There's anywhere you can go. You can go anywhere you want. I, I will step back just for a moment, if I may. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book <laughs> a couple of years ago, Amazing Stories of the Space Age. And one of my favorite chapters that I got to really sort of play with was about the old Orion project, the nuclear pulse drive spacecraft that Freeman Dyson and others were working on in the 50s and 60s. And you know, those things were going to be built like battleships. And unfortunately, they had to use nuclear bombs to take off the Earth's surface, which isn't ideal for reasons we all understand. But if you could start getting that, not that particular kind of propulsion system, although people are still studying nuclear pulse drives, but really effective, high-energy, advanced propulsion systems like that going now we're not just talking about the Earth and the Moon. We're talking about Mars and beyond and the asteroid belt and, and so forth. So that that's another big component is figuring out advanced propulsion and how to keep, you know, humans are fragile. We're not really good at being in space. We have to have a lot of protection and a lot of infrastructure to keep us going. We got to figure out, uh, and this, this is across that whole span of time we're talking about, we got to figure out how to protect people and optimize our existence up there so that you can live there, you can have children, you can raise children and not come back to Earth and have all your bones shatter the second you get out of your spacecraft, because that would be a very bad day. 
Yeah, I mean that 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 kind of opens up a whole new paradigm, doesn't it? The the how do you change humans almost so that we can it's it's either building something around us that that makes that work or actually changing what <laughs> humans themselves. I mean, there's quite a few technologies that that I think are really interesting like CRISPR and stuff like that that I think may actually have really profound space implications because you're able to protect people maybe from radiation just have a you know some people seem more immune to radiation than than others Uh, so maybe we'll see some yeah genetic changes i don't don't know (laughs) but but that that opens up you're a brave man skating out on the thin ice in the center of the pond my friend (laughs) you know it's interesting you get into discussions that touch on transhumanism i was talking to a group at a conference not too long ago and some it, this was particularly about like really just kind of wild-eyed futurism, which is of course the most fun you can have. And so they said, so you know, ultimately, if you're talking about the edge of the solar system or other star systems, how do we do that? And I said, well, there's the idea of generation ships where people live and die for hundreds of years heading to another star system. There's the idea of suspended animation, cryogenically probably, where we go out there slumbering all the way and wake up on the other side, hopefully. There's the idea of just carrying genetic material and sort of rebooting humans 2.0 on the other side when you when you get to your target. Or there's the idea, like you say, of, of changing what human beings are. So what does it really mean to be a human being when we're talking about being in these hostile environments? You know, can we take human consciousness? My my favorite idea is this. We take human consciousness. And because electronics are, are shrinking so quickly, we get down to the form of, of micro-organic computing and so basically, you put human consciousness in a robot the size and configuration of a cockroach. I mean, you've got all these extra legs and hands to use. That's very handy. You can withstand gamma rays, any deep space radiation, temperature extremes, vacuum, all that stuff. It's just another another day at work. You know, it's no big deal. It may be a little harder to, to hook up in terms of mating, and, and mating when, when you're trying to get used to the other person being a cockroach. But by then... You know, the, the mechanical cockroaches will be able to, to project an image of something that's that's very appealing and sensual to us, and we'll just have a changed perspective. So although that's a little further, I think, than you were talking about, <laughs> yeah. but you're right. I mean, I was interviewing a flight surgeon for the book at, at Johnson Space Center, really nice guy, and Bill Tarver, and he said, you know, a lot of what we're going to be doing to try and mediate the effects of space travel long term you know, yes, we want to have partial gravity environments with rotating structures and so forth, but there's a lot of work being done just in pharmaceuticals, for instance, in in in, in bone density and, and radiation um, protection that could that show a lot of promise. So I think a lot of things will converge to that point to allow us to stay out there longer before we have to become cockroaches. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how far away do you think a scenario like? I mean, I'm assuming you've seen it because it sounds like it'd be the kind of thing that you'd have watched, The Expanse or something like that. How far oh, <laughs> away are we from that? I mean, that that just seems always for me, even though I love being an optimist, but it just always seems just like nuclear fusion. It never comes. <laughs> right. Well, and we have the we we have the penalty of 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 knowledge of history, right? So if you were alive during the Apollo era, we were going to be on Mars in 10 years. No sweat. We've done it at the moon. We've got the hardware. Eh, we make it a little bigger, more powerful. It's got to take multiple launches. It's not a problem. Well, here we are 50 years later, and we're still waiting. And, you know, 
it's not going to be too long before we're as far from the first moon landing as it was from the first flights of airplanes in Europe and America back around the turn of the century, the 19th to 20th century. And that's kind of shameful in a way, given how much we did in that short period of the space race to look at how long it's taken to take these next steps. Yes, we picked the low hanging fruit. Yes, what we're trying to do now is a lot more difficult, but let's get with it already. So, um, you know, the expanse, of course, the expanse, if you're going to buy into the expanse, you know, it's this kind of nihilistic, uh, you know, if you're living as a miner out in the belt, it's miserable and there's all kinds of corruption and vice and people have really weird haircuts and it's kind of miserable. And then the next thing you know, everybody's at war because as I discovered when I was working on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the ratings always went up whenever you started shooting people. And so that's <laughs> why we had so many battles with the Cardassians and the Dominion and so forth. Um, I hope that doesn't have to follow. And I, I hope that something in that general area, what I love about the expanse is you don't just fly around like you're flying a fighter plane, which has been long the conceit of space opera on television and in books. You got to flip and burn to slow down before you get to the other side. And I thought, wow, these guys are really putting their, their muscle into it. Yeah, they still have push button gravity. You know that that's probably <laughs> going to happen for a really long time. But other than that, at least it doesn't look like the lounge of a cruise ship, like like Star Trek: Next Generation did with all that that mauve velour upholstery and everything. You know, yeah. <laughs> so so I'd like to think fifteen to twenty years. But I would have said the same thing at the end of the space race. So you're not you're not going to bind me into that box. No, no. So I, I'm I, an optimist I, like you. Yeah. So I, I, I better wrap this up. So I'm just going to, I'm going to finish with a couple of fun questions. Have you sure. got, uh, the, the one question that we ask a lot of people is, have you got a, when you're talking to people and you want to blow their mind about space, have you got a space fact, we like to call them, uh, that that's your favorite, that, that always, every time you say it, you think, oh, I better check it because it, just sounds so ridiculous now I'm saying it again. Yeah, and you know, you, you prompted me with that, and I, I immediately put it out of my mind because I was thinking about <laughs> other things I want to talk about. Um, you know, I think one of the space facts, and this isn't a, a positive fact, this is kind of a negative, is that it still costs something like $8,000 to launch a gallon of water, which, you know, then when you think about if, if you're launching human beings – Please make sure they evacuate themselves before they get on the spacecraft because all that poo is really heavy and expensive to launch. Uh, you're really getting down to nickels and dimes here. So it's incredibly expensive. I guess uh, in terms of mind blowers, um, I mean, anything Elon Musk is kind of uh, d talks about doing is kind of mind blowing. The problem is it doesn't always happen on his schedule. But the idea of being able to launch a significant payload, like something the size of Falcon 9, for three to five million dollars instead of the sixty they're charging now, and sixty is already a revolution. I mean, these guys actually publish their prices on the internet. How amazing is that? You know, nobody did that up until them. Um, I think that's kind of a mind blower. Is that that level, that kind of exponential reduction in cost, and what that will allow us to do, especially in terms of human spaceflight? I think that's my favorite. There's probably better ones, but that's the one that comes to mind. Well, I think, yeah, in terms of the spirit of your book, I think it's probably the, it is the very essence of it, isn't it, really? It's the, it's it's kind of what's driving Space 2.0. But yeah, actually, I really like that fact. I, I, do you know what? I've never even thought about, yeah, just going going for a wee before you fly uh, saves quite a bit of fuel. <laughs> I never even thought about that. Yeah. And then once you get up, on the other hand, if you keep it until you get up there, it'll be 
recycled in the drinking water. So, you know, it kind of works on both ends, but I, I prefer the first scenario myself. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, we'll give you a chance to add a, uh, a space song to our, uh, our space playlist. Do you have anything that, uh, that, you, that is space-related that always kind of gets your space juices flowing? I, I grew up in a classical music household where rock and roll was frowned upon because my father was a classical musician and it just wasn't something that was part of the background there. So I, I have kind of a, a, a dearth of, of, of knowledge of popular music, although I do love uh, the song that they played by Dave Bowie when they launched the Falcon Heavy. You know, uh, is there? I think it was "Is There Life on Mars," right? Yeah. Well, it's no. I think it was. He's got so many, but I think it was "Space Oddity." I think that one. Uh, do you know what? I'm going to have to check. Think, but it might be "Life on Mars." Yeah. They <laughs> yeah, no, timed but, it perfectly. So when the fairing of the rocket separated to reveal the Tesla Roadster, and the light hit it, and we saw this cherry red car with a guy sitting in it, mannequin yeah. though he may have been, it was at this crescendo in the music, and I practically started crying. <laughs> I thought, "This is so amazing." You can't buy this kind of PR. You know, NASA in the old days would have stuck a load of water or a concrete block in the nose of the rocket for ballast and said, okay, that worked. Let's take the next step. But Musk says, ah, hell, I'm going to launch my car because it's more interesting. So that was that was a piece that I suddenly decided was a new favorite. I think uh, the Sweet Venus from Gustav Holst, The Planets, is another. And I just wish, I always wish that he had taken the planets out all the way to Pluto but uh, of course, it wasn't wasn't part of the conversation then. But can you imagine if you gave somebody like Stravinsky or Gustav Mahler, uh, Mahler the task of writing something about space? What they would have come up with. So I guess my favorite piece is that fictional uh, bit that Ooh. didn't happen. Yeah, I'm that's... still waiting for somebody to compose that piece. Well, you, you know that um, there was a bunch of composers that did take. Uh, the Holst theme a little bit further. So someone did do Pluto, and I believe there was a British composer called Turnage who did a who did a couple of the minor planets, the Vesta and Ceres, I think. Ah, so I didn't it, know. It, yeah, so it's yeah, it's it's out there. I think oh, we've actually. I think I've got. I I put a couple of those ones on the uh, on the playlist. I'll, uh, okay, well, let me give you something specific because I'm being too vague here. Uh, <laughs> Jerry Goldsmith's theme for the first Star Trek movie. Oh, that yes. Because yeah, a, Goldsmith, I was fortunate to meet him a couple of times because he was in L.A. I'm in L.A. I was kind of part of the music scene, and he would come out and conduct concerts at the Hollywood Bowl. I got him to sign the the jacket of my laser disc of Star Trek, the motion picture, one of the probably one of the most unloved laser discs ever created. And um, <laughs> I, you know, lo I, said, I, I I love that movie. I don't. I don't. I, I, I've I, seen. I, <laughs> but but we're you know. We're guys that in another parallel universe lived with our parents until we were 50. So, you know, there's an excuse for that. But I said, Mr. Goldsmith, I just have to tell you, you know, having been a fan of Star Trek since the beginning, having spent some time working around it, because I just had to, you know, I was just working in the effect shop. So we were playing with models and stuff. But I said, you completely reinvented that franchise for so many of us. And I just thank you endlessly and you know, he got all emotional and stuff which was nice but yeah it was an incredible an incredible theme and something they really needed yeah that's a that's a good call that's going in that's going in. okay <laughs> absolutely okay thank you very thank you very much for spending the time that was a really really fascinating fascinating chat i've i felt thank as though you. i've i've learned a lot and I, and I can't wait to finish this book off 
It's fantastic. I'm really lucky to get a, a forward copy. When does when does the book come out and and what and where can you get it and can you get it on Audible and can you get it what's the what's the various formats? It's coming out on February 28th, I think. And it'll be at all major booksellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, online physical stores, your local neighborhood bookshop. Support your local neighborhood bookshop. It'll also be on uh, on Audible, and uh, it'll also be available in Mandarin Chinese. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it'll be on the same date, but it's coming out in that market and hopefully others. So, yeah, they're, 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 Ben Bella is the publisher. They're wonderful to work with, very aggressive in marketing and, and getting things placed, and they've done an incredible job. So I'm, I'm really, really happy and excited about this one. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so well laid out. It, it's got the whole... It's just mapped out just perfectly, <laughs> really. That's what that's what well, I really like about it. It's, it's got that whole um, clarity of thought through the whole thing. It's brilliant. You can, you can thank Jim Louder, my my very capable ed- editor, for part of that because he ran me through the ringer uh, more than once, <laughs> <laughs> and, and needed to because it, it, the manuscript needed his his input to be beaten into shape, and he did a great job. So, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Well, it's it's such a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's something that I I struggle with massively, and and I know all, all the students that I mark, they're they're not even close to having that <laughs> be able to do it. It is tough, and and it's a moving target. I mean, I was literally calling the editor up till hours before, and and unfortunately for them, after the due date for everything, saying, "Oh, Elon just renamed his spaceship again. It's not the BFR anymore." So trying to just keep up with all these changes. Changes and shifts in policy and investment was a major feat, but I, I think we did it. And thank God, things the changes slowed down a little bit right about the time we went to press. So it'll be right on time for a while. I'm happy about that too. Perfect. <laughs> well, thanks very thanks very much for for coming on. And uh, thanks, I, I wish it. wish you all the luck with the with the book. Great. Take care. The Interplanetary Podcast is. That was Rod Pyle, whose book Space 2.0, How Private Spaceflight, a Resurgent NASA, and International Partners are Creating a New Space Age, is out on the 14th of March. Excellent stuff. Please check out his work. Uh, I believe you can find them on Amazon. Well, of course you can. Yeah, he's he's all over it. Yeah, Rod, Rod Pyle, I'm currently re- reading Space 2.0, and it's a really, really great book. It's brilliant. Excellent stuff. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much. And, of course, National Space Society, very similar to the British Interplanetary Society. Who's got the best figurehead? So you've got the Planetary Society with Carl Sagan. Tick. You've got the uh, National Space Society that was started by... Werner von Braun. Half tick. Oh, cut. Wow, well, okay. <laughs> and then you've got the British Interplanetary Society that is most associated with Arthur C. Clarke. Heavy tick. Heavy tick. There we go. Matt, would you like a space fact? You know I can't finish a show without a space fact. Right, here we go. Are you sitting down? Yep. The outermost part of our planet's atmosphere extends well beyond the lunar orbit, almost twice the distance to the moon. A recent discovery based on observations by ESA and NASA, Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, SOHO, shows the gaseous layer that wraps around the Earth reaches up to 630,000 kilometres away, or 50 times the diameter of our planet. What do you think about that? 
Well, so much, so much for the thin blue line. Not so thin. <laughs> it's not so thin, is it? That really does make you realise that sort of having an arbitrary line about where space begins and Earth finishes is is really difficult, isn't it? So a quote here from Igor Balukin of Russia's Space Research Institute, lead author of the paper presenting these results, says, The moon flies through Earth's atmosphere. We were not aware of it until we dusted off observations made over two decades ago by the Soho spacecraft. Wow. Think of that. The moon flies through Earth's atmosphere. It's amazing, isn't it? Considering Soho was launched in 1995, that we're still getting all this fantastic information from it. This, I have to say, this is becoming my common theme now. All these brilliant probes and satellites and spacecraft are out there collecting tons and tons of data. And even when their missions are over, it's decades and decades of pouring through the data and you still find new stuff. Matt, if I was a listener for the first time today mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the show, what could I do? You could go to interplanetary.org.uk. Oh, yeah. Have a little browse around there. You might find some nice back catalogue uh, episodes. You might find a couple of beautiful pictures. You might find some interesting blog posts. You also might find a link to our Patreon page where you may feel as though you want to become part of the journey, the part of the journey where people join in and become Spodcats. Oh, yes. So, Matt, um, it's been a wonderful yeah. show. I would personally, I don't know about you, but I just want to wish everyone a good weekend. And me. Take care of yourself, everybody. All the Spodcats out there, we love you. We love you more than cats. We do. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Bye-bye, Spudcat. See you soon. Bye. See you.